and welcome to the Hashtag Angels podcast, where we bring you conversations about the latest tech trends with the people inventing and shaping them. I'm Jessica Varelli, and today you'll hear from co-host Jana Measuresmith. My first memories really as a young child would be that my dad was sleeping during the day so that he could do these other shifts in the much later evening hours. And April Underwood. I think back on that now, and it's not as if I'm the most socially gifted person in the world, but I have really had to trial by fire and kind of figure out how to just navigate these circles, let alone ones that have been oftentimes mostly men, but there are those hierarchies and so forth that I just had no exposure to. Who sit down with Mercy Victoria Grace. When we went to college, my older brother and I were the first in our sort of cohort to go to four universities. My brother Justice went to UC Berkeley. And when he enrolled, my dad went back to school. He kept working full-time. Mercy is an investor, advisor, and product builder. She was previously a VC at Lightspeed, director of product at Slack, and started her career as a founder of a social gaming company. Today's episode is full of real talk. Jana, April, and Mercy talk about their family backgrounds, and what it's like to navigate Silicon Valley having no exposure to the business cultural norms of the industry growing up. What do look for in founders they back and why understanding what they call invisible work is crucial for building customer empathy. It's a really special episode and we're excited to share it with you. All right, let's jump in. So Mercy is a longtime company builder, a founder, venture capitalist, and investor in the ecosystem. She's been in Silicon Valley for a long time and has had just some absolutely incredible roles. You know, got to know April while she was running growth at Slack. And then I got to know Mercy when we were both investors at Lightspeed. So it's like a reunion today. One of the things I love about Mercy's background, too, is your start in gaming. And it's one of the things that I think makes you such an asset to the teams that you join and the products that you work on is that perspective. And I hope we get to talk a little bit about that today, too. I did not know until we dove into your bio that your first game only lost out for some big award for the MMO of the year to like a World of Warcraft franchise, which is really yeah. incredible. So. <laughs> I have never played World of Warcraft, but I am sure that I liked your game better. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So Mercy, maybe we could get started at the beginning. You've been super open about your upbringing growing up in Central California. You wrote an amazing blog post that's on Medium called Happy to Help. But maybe you could talk just a little bit about your upbringing and how it led you to Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think there are some foundational parts of my upbringing that are really responsible for who I am today and how I ended up in in startups. I think the first is that I'm one of seven children, and I am the fifth of seven kids. (laughs) So uh, for those of you who are not from large families, that's very low in the hierarchy. But I ended up being the person who designed the games that we played as kids. We like to say we had too many kids in our family to play house. So we played town and the game of town, had, <laughs> there was a male person. There was usually an accountant, our friend, Natalie, who grew up, of course, to become an accountant in, in real life. She knew early on what she wanted to do. And, uh, and I got used to advocating with leadership, my parents, in order for the resources that, <laughs> that we needed to complete our projects, which was, you know, renting um, Willow for the thousandth time or one of the old Hobbit movies. 
Amazing. And talk a little bit about just your family and the different generations. I remember reading in the blog post about just how with each generation, you've kind of moved up in terms of the economic tier. And would just be kind of curious to dive a little bit more into that background. Like a lot of uh, millennials, my grandparents were children during the Great Depression. And in my particular family, they were also part of the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. So I remember hearing stories from my grandfather about his time as a little kid during the Great Depression. And they actually lived in a tent for many years. And his mom tried really hard to still feed them healthy food. So she would, you know, bake their own bread and she would send him to school with, you know, real bread. And he would trade his bread with kids who had white flour store-bought bread with just a little bit of lard in between it because it was like the junk food, not realizing at the time, of course, that his mom was trying very hard to make sure that he had something really nutritious. My dad did a little bit better for himself. He ended up going to community college before having kids. He was enrolled in a four-year university when I was born. And then apparently um, he didn't know like all of the dates exactly. And he was telling me this story about how, oh yeah, and then we had another kid. I forget who it was and I had to drop out. And I was like, (laughs) oh yeah, that was me. (laughs) Not that I am in any way responsible for my own existence, but, uh, but I was the one that kicked him out of college. And it was a unique experience When we went to college, my older brother and I, who were the first in our sort of cohort to go to four universities, my brother Justice went to UC Berkeley. And when he enrolled, my dad went back to school. He kept working full time. And at some point in college, I think sophomore year, I get a a phone call from him. And he's like, oh my God, are you having as much trouble as I am? I'm just, it's so much homework. There's so much work. I didn't think it would be this much. And I asked him, how many units are you taking, dad? And he's like, 14. I'm like, oh, you're taking a full class load and you're working full time at the same time as a nurse at a hospital. That is, that is absolutely incredible. I explained the math, you know, oh, it's an hour in the classroom is, you know, four hours outside of work, you know, per week or whatever it was. And he was like, oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. But that's my family, right? My dad didn't even know really how units worked and, and how they translated to time. And so my experience post-college and and coming up in technology has been one of, you know, trying to learn everything that everyone else is trying to learn, but also trying to learn what turns out to be kind of basic stuff around being a professional that just coming from a family of blue collar workers and teachers, I really didn't know. Both April and I grew up in similar scenarios. I grew up in a very small town in the Midwest. My parents were both teachers. And then my dad had decided in an effort so that my mom could stay home for a number of years to raise my brother and I that he needed to take a higher paying job. And so he went to work at Caterpillar, um, the earth moving equipment and tractor company that was based in Peoria, Illinois. And his first job was actually working in the shop, second shift. And so my first memories really as a young child would be that my dad was sleeping during the day so that he could do these other shifts in the much later evening hours. And over time, you know, he ended up moving more into the management side of things. But what you said, Mercy, about, you know, feeling ill-prepared sometimes, like working in Silicon Valley, that definitely resonates with me. I also didn't have exposure to social situations that would sort of teach you certain 
social mores and just like I don't know frankly even like conversational tactics that like you know you would find yourself at your first business dinner or something like that and just like feeling really out of place and just like uncomfortable and, and sort of conscious that you're not really sure exactly what to bring to the conversation. So I'm sure, especially in my early career, probably swung wildly between like topics totally inappropriate <laughs> for work. And then also just like not bringing a lot to the table to so that, you know, that like business conversation that's like, it's not too superficial because then it's boring, but it also like never really gets anywhere too interesting either. Um, especially if you've got people from different levels of the org chart and we're talking about like 2002, it's like a different era. And it was definitely an era where frankly, like the more senior people at the table had sort of set the tone for what the conversation topics were. And I just like had not even been in an environment where I sort of knew how to interact with those levels of seniority, senior business dudes or whatever. I probably didn't know the appropriate response when I was reading an article about Hillary Clinton was and was told, well, when you get older and you have money, you'll vote differently. <laughs> now I know the appropriate response is actually quite inappropriate. <laughs> but um, I think I probably was just stunned and wasn't really sure how to navigate the conversation. And I think back on that now, and it's not as if I'm the most socially gifted person in the world, but I have really had to trial by fire and kind of figure out how to just navigate these circles let alone ones that have been oftentimes mostly men, but there are those hierarchies and so forth that I just had no exposure to in a world in which I didn't know a single person who really worked for like a private mm -hmm. company mm -hmm. until I was probably in April, my April, I remember when we yeah. were working at Twitter together and we, do you remember we used to go and get a mani-pedi every once in a while? But I remember sitting and doing a mani-pedi with you and we were both kind of talking about how we felt over our skis in our like new leadership roles within Twitter and Twitter at the time was just growing like crazy. And I remember you said something to me that always stuck with me. You said, we're all punching above our weight here. And it was like so refreshing mm. because I felt like a fish out of water in a lot of ways. And it was so nice to hear other people feeling also uncomfortable with like newfound responsibility, newfound status, newfound leadership. So it always stuck with me. You always seem like you had your shit together, Jana. You know, I'm a calm, cool veneer, but kind of a hot mess on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Mercy, your piece, happy to help. I read it when, when you published it first, but then I reread it this week. And you talked about some of the work that you did in the service of product research and like actually understanding your customers. And it's so top of mind for me. Yeah. Because for nearby, for my startup, I actually spent most of the holiday season doing delivery and shipping and packaging. And it has been sort of funny because like along the way, I feel like some of my cohort from some of the work that I've done around Slack or investors or so forth had been sort of like, are you okay? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, yeah. Almost like it's sort of like funny, but I mean, in reality, I have no idea how I would be able to build this business if I wasn't spending some time doing that. Like it never crossed my mind not to spend the holiday season as close to our customers and our the merchants we're working with as possible. So anyway, I was just reading your experience from GigWalk and going and spending time in, I guess, mm -hmm. a fulfillment center in Walmart. And I just, I feel like that's so core to product development, but it is in some ways not all that common, I think, that that founders and product folks really like are comfortable going and getting to know their users unless their users are software engineers or look just like them. I would, yeah. I'm curious like what you've seen and how core you think that is to building great products. 
Unfortunately, I, I find that a lot of early stage founders who should be doing almost nothing except speaking with their customers will avoid having those conversations, even if they're building for people who are just like them. And in some cases, mm -hmm. they use that affinity as kind of a crutch. They're like, oh, you know, I am the customer, therefore I never need to speak to anyone else. It's like, well, <laughs> you're going to get punched in the face when you go out to market. <laughs> And uh, yeah. you should always be speaking to customers. Not only the importance of speaking to customers so that you build the right thing, but also being good at that zero to one stage, which is all chaos and uncertainty. And oftentimes the companies that start to barely pull ahead and then thank you, exponential growth, it looks like almost nothing. And then you look back and you're hugely ahead of the competition. It's often because you're willing to do things that are so manual and, and mind-numbing that they just wouldn't occur to your competition to do. You're just there mm -hmm. willing to grind it out and that makes all the difference. And I think like that's one of the things yeah. like when you're going from zero to one, you really have to be prepared to have no ego and you've got to just jump in and do anything and everything possible to make your startup fly. Like, and I've talked to quite a few founders where I think sometimes they get a little bit surprised. So, you know, let's say that they were an amazing product person or amazing engineer out of like a bigger tech company. And then all of a sudden they're like, doing office management work and they're doing like a bunch of HR admin pieces. And then they also realize that such a big piece of it is hiring and recruiting and selling. Yeah. There's a lot that's invisible to you when you work, when you're in a position of privilege anywhere, mm -hmm. right? Growing up and your mom does all your laundry and cooks your food. You don't learn how to do those things. And so then suddenly you're in college and you're like, oh no, I never learned how to do these real life skills. And then people who kind of quote unquote grow up at one of the like fang companies often get punched in the face when they go out to market or they go to join an early stage startup because all of this work that other people were doing for them was really invisible. And I think people who have our backgrounds see that work because, you know, we've done it or our parents did it. And so it's just never going to be invisible to us. That's often something that I look for in founders that I back as an investor is if you were someone who grew up at Fang, you know, one of these, these big companies, the reference that I want is not a glowing reference <laughs> because... If, if if everyone is so happy with the work that you did and how you behaved while you were, you know, not to be kind of a cog in a machine, right? You're in front of this huge instrument panel tuning these little 1% of population tests. You're probably not going to be either happy or good at the total self-reliant, scrappy zero to one startup phase. And so the feedback that I wanted to get for someone who I would eventually invest in was, you know what? You know, Mildred, brilliant engineer, but I was like, oh, okay, good, good. Uh, but she would often go off on her own. You know, she would get some idea in her head and then she'd spend all weekend building it. And then, you know, the work was really good, but it was outside of plan or whatever. And I'm like, yes, yes, tell me more about this. Like, that's that's who I want. I don't want someone It's just like, they were so amazing and they managed up really well. They managed down really well. It's like, you want someone who uh, has something just like a little bit wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Here's as April uh, is currently, you know, in the zero to one building, I guess there's hopefully something a little bit wrong with April. <laughs> the list is long. The list is long. We don't have time for that on this podcast. So. 
Mercy, will you talk a little bit about you? You've been a game designer. You have started your own companies. You've been director of product at, I think, a pre-product market fit company with Gigwalk. And then now, obviously, was at Slack through a ton of growth. So can you talk a little bit about the pre-product market fit phase? And not just for me, who personally like would love to hear um, <laughs> your advice in a pep talk, but for all of the listeners out there who think there's a chance they're pre-product market fit. Yeah, yeah. Pre-product, it's a fun stage if you can handle it emotionally. And it's not just you, the you know, the founders, but the early employees. No one has ever heard of your company, right? 100%. Your parents don't know what you do. Your friends, <laughs> it's not impressive that you work at this company that no one's ever heard of, that as far as they know is, you know, one of many thousands of, of startups. In part, people who are a really good fit can be hard to find because, mm -hmm. of course, we live in a very narcissistic society generally. But then of course, Silicon Valley is we're similar to I think Hollywood or, or entertainment generally, in the fact that like, if you get a hit, right, suddenly you're at this other level, and you get invited to the parties, you get, you know, people think you're a lot smarter than you are. And I remember having <laughs> been a founder and really struggling in these pre product market fit companies. And I was hanging out with some friends who were all founders of, of pre-product market fit companies. And we were all talking about the enormous hours that we were opening in. And I was like, oh yeah. And they're like, well, you're doing that because it's Slack, right? And so it's like worth it. And I'm like, this is just how I am. <laughs> and it's not, I'm not like turning it on for, for Slack. I've just been working this hard and it turns out for no reason or any money <laughs> for the 10 years of my career before joining Slack. But I learned so much because you... You learn a lot from being wrong. And I think that is something that I've leaned into as I've grown up in Silicon Valley, probably more than anything else. And as I've gotten right about more things because I've seen more stuff, I'm delighted to be wrong because that's the only time at which you really learn things. And then hyper growth companies, it's just working and you don't necessarily know why. And people aren't always curious about figuring out why something is working. And they kind of just take it as like this uh, unseen momentum, you know, it's the wind at your back. And until it starts to die down, which of course it always does because things don't scale exponentially forever, it can be a really sort of like interesting time. What are some things you've been wrong about lately that you've <laughs> learned from? Ooh, yeah. Maybe we should all answer <laughs> My husband invested very early on in this company called Masterclass. And early on, it was just this guy, David, who is an incredible individual and had been working with Michael Deering at Harrison Metal. Uh, and I remember meeting David and talking to him about maybe, you know, joining as I think I was doing UX design at that point as a consultant or something. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, they got Dustin Hoffman for this one thing, but is this really going to be a big company? April, what's your uh, most recent thing that you've gotten wrong? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's on my mind right now is just how quickly you need help in the stage that I'm in for Nearby. Just raised our Series A, very excited about that and have some really promising early traction. Like it's pretty clear people want something like what we're building to exist, but I need help in a bunch of areas. And it like sort of hit me like that sneaker wave where you're like, you're like, you know, Hiring people would just introduce more chaos. I think you can always sort of convince yourself of that early on. Mm -hmm. But then by the time you actually need the help, you're actually like a few months late. And I sort of have known that from my growth company experience. Like, I feel like it's a little easier to see when there's like a hole in the organization or whatever. But when, you know, you're still, it's like 
do we start to have a marketing team? Like, when do you hire your first PM? Things that I actually end up counseling people on a lot. I still think it can be very challenging to see in the mirror for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, totally fixable. But I would say what I was what I'm wrong about right now is that there's some areas where I could have used more help about three months ago. And until I find those people, I'm going to be swimming like twice as fast and doing things that I'm not, you know, there are a lot of people that could be doing them better. And uh, so I'm eager for the help. What about you, Jana? Jana <laughs> you ever, you're, are you ever wrong? Everyone says that once you've been investing for a while, you'll have a huge slew of misses of companies that you got access to, but passed on. And I am starting to feel that more and more. And so one that, you know, kind of constantly um, eats at me is we saw, you know, one of the very first rounds for Chime many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember thinking, wow, it's interesting. Like the founder's super compelling, but like, oh, customer acquisition costs, like it's just so competitive. You know, there's just so many incumbents. Like, how is this gonna work? So yeah, that that was a miss for sure. Um, the good news is is another company that we invested in did sell to time. So now we have some <laughs> exposure, a company called Pinch, uh, which was founded by Michael Ducker and Maya Bittner. But um, that's definitely one that like keeps me up a bit. Yeah. It's just the email trail. The fact that you can like look back to where you like just didn't respond or responded slowly or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. It's unfortunately like it's it's in the Every time there's it's a markup in, time. yeah. Every time there's a markup in valuation on a handful of companies, we just like resurface the thread <laughs> across hashtag angels, and we do the math on what it would be worth. Because apparently we're all masochists. <laughs> yeah, the self-flagellation. I feel less FOMO than Jana, which is why Jana um, is a professional investor. <laughs> I'm like it's fine, good for them. <laughs> apparently. Apparently, I'm really putting the capitalist and venture capitalist these days. <laughs> <laughs> Better you than anybody else. So, Mercy, so you recently made a big decision and in terms of what you're sort of aiming for next. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to just talk about big decisions. Like, we've all made some big decisions, leaving high-growth companies when they still were on their growth trajectory. You guys have made the leap into full-time investing. That's not something that I've done. I've, I've taken the left turn towards the founder door. Um, would just love to hear about your frameworks around that. I know I, I feel like I'm somebody that marinates and marinates and marinates and then makes the decision in like it appears to be 24 hours but it was actually like a long time of mm -hmm. marination yeah. but it looks like I'm a person that makes a decision like I flip a table or something <laughs> because my process is very like behind oh, gosh. the wall I would inside my own head like 200 bucks to be the fly on the wall in some situation that got you to flip a table I feel like that would just be <laughs> I can't even imagine what would uh, cause you to lose that level of poise uh, it would happen, but we won't cover it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because that's what big decisions are. They're those one-way doors, and that's you know primarily how I think of them. Maybe a year ago, eight or eight, eight or twelve months ago, what is time <laughs> uh, during COVID? <laughs> At some point in the last like year, I came across this framework. I think it's the Farnham Street framework, and they encourage you to do two things that I think are very helpful. One is think of, it's kind of the pre-mortem of personal life decisions, which is what is the worst possible outcome? 
and then really like be very clear. Okay, I take this job or I leave this job or I marry this person or I have a child. What's the worst thing that could happen? And then work backwards from there to say, okay, how can I either guard against that or make this decision in a way that that doesn't happen? Or how do I find out enough about that worst possible outcome to convince myself it's still okay to go through with this decision? That has been really helpful. I looked heavily into, you know, the idea of having children, especially as like a very ambitious woman. And so, you know, knowing that all of the early care falls disproportionately on the woman, I used that framework here. And so I went and looked at a bunch of literature and studies from people who regret becoming parents, because that to me seemed like the worst outcome. You know, some people would say something terrible happened to the child, you know, but that's more of a kind of black swan event. And the other side of love is grief. So there's kind of nothing to be done about that, but you can decide whether to or not. And so I spent, you know, months really struggling with the decision to try to have a kid or not based on that. And it was very interesting to see all of those studies. Mm -hmm. I have to say that's a blog post I'm uh, waiting to read. So (laughs) if you've got any time, (laughs) would love to hear. Would love to read that. Yeah, yeah. There was a recent conversation on Twitter. I can't remember which journalist it was. It sounds like Marcy, you may have seen it. A writer even sort of just posed this as a topic she was interested in, and it conjured so much. It is just like one of the most taboo things. Like people just don't even want to hear that somebody is thinking about this issue, which is just so, so challenging. And because so much of the work it does systemically fall towards the mother, mm-hmm. it is such an, un, like an undue burden um, for it to be something that, you know, people don't even discuss with their closest yeah. friends and family and also can't even discuss from like an academic, like, is this a thing yeah. um, standpoint, which was sort of how I read that recent conversation on Twitter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier about doing the work. What I think a lot of people don't realize always coming into parenting is it is just a lot of like super, super mundane, repeatable list of tasks. If you are coming from a certain privileged way that you spend your day and then you come home and you literally are covered in like baby poop or baby vomit, it is a very... I don't know. It's a very different like context switch. And I think, I don't know, parenting, I think is truly the hardest job that I've ever had because you're just like really trying to both like do the tactical work, but especially now I have a daughter who's six. It's like actually starting to deal with like real emotional, Mm -hmm. you know, questions and like questions about what's happening in the world. And I know that that's only going to get more interesting and more complex Mm -hmm. as she grows. But it's it is a tough job. The confluence of parenting and then any sort of role where you can convince yourself that every extra hour you put into the role is like positive ROI for you, your team, mm-hmm. the company, maybe the world. If you work at a company whose mission like is, you know, is something that you really believe in. Yeah. That that's a tough thing. And I think like that very much points to the Silicon Valley culture. Like I'm here in Austin right now. Part of the reason I'm here in Austin for five weeks is to literally experience a place that's different than the Bay Area on both a personal level and also a market research level for building nearby. <laughs> it, it is also the tacos. I'm yes, not going are. to be on the bush Taco. on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So Mercy, I don't know if you know this, but April's house is only like five minutes from Chili's, which is what she's luring me with yeah. to get her get I, me to come I'm visit. I'm saving I'm saving my trip to Chili's for you to visit, Jana. You'll be you'll be glad to know I have not made it there yet. Last time I was in a Chili's, but, I texted Jana a photo of the food I was eating. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that it's been since you've known Jana. That make that the Chili's people will be happy to hear that we're looking for sponsorship, but. I will just say in Silicon Valley, there is this culture, which is that like, if you're really serious about your career and you're serious about what you're doing, Mm -hmm. then you are doing it as hard as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And that you are meeting every founder that you can. You're showing up in places, you're recruiting people, you're like, it's just like, there's all this stuff sort of outside of the business hours. And I I do think that like, that's the part where some of the real trade-offs come into play. Mm -hmm. You can go to work and you can do your job from nine to six or whatever, and hopefully get home and spend a little bit of time with a young child. But there is all of that other stuff. And that stuff doesn't feel like it's bonus in these hyper growth companies. It feels like it is like, it's yeah. part of the job. Mm-hmm. I don't have a good answer for that. Nobody does. I think that's where young parents really face some real challenges in trying to find the right balance. Yeah. I think also like on the investing side, it's because at the end of the day, the product that you're selling is money. And so you're trying to figure out like how to differentiate your money from someone else's money. And one of the ways of doing that is just like the full court press with the founders, Mm -hmm. like when they're trying to make a decision and you see uh, VCs, you know, hopping on the red eye, showing up like at the founder's door, like spending several, you know, days or a week with them, wooing them and like showing them all the cool like things that they can do for them. And it is really, really disruptive, I think, on personal lives, especially if you have a spouse that works or maybe you don't have full time help. Mm-hmm. It's pretty challenging and disruptive for sure. Yeah, it wasn't until becoming an institutional VC and having this be my peers at other firms that a few things clicked into place about the demographics of VC for one, because <laughs> it is still more of that role where it is going to, you know, quote unquote golf, even if it's like playing Fortnite nowadays, <laughs> same old, you're golfing with the, with the founder. It's a very much the sales job. And if you want to win, you have to answer the phone call at 10 PM. We have had a partner meeting at 10 p.m. one time around a deal that, that I was chasing that that was really hot. And I sent out that thing. I'm like, you know, I'm so sorry, but whoever can come, you know, please do. And of course, the sort of like lead players showed up, but then so did a ton of everyone else because that's the expectation. And so we had, I don't know, mm-hmm. 20, 25 partners on a phone call at 10 p.m. to discuss this fast moving deal. And that wasn't a unique situation. Yeah, I mean, and the pace right now, and we've discussed the pace. I mean, my my Series A fundraise included a lot of weekend meetings. I mean, it was yes. like basically like 35 days straight of like seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Mercy, we had a little bit of a conversation about this, but like, I don't know, what, like what's your, how is it out there right now? Just certainly from the investor side, but I'd, I'd love to hear what you think it really means for founders, this current environment. Like in theory, this is like a fantastic environment in which to raise money for founders. Mm-hmm. And yet, there are aspects of this pace that I, I don't know, I think are, are, are probably not good for anybody. Yeah. And I, I'd love to hear your take. I, I primarily worry for the founders around this situation. Ultimately, as a VC, you know, what you're doing is placing a bet. And depending on your reputation, how your, how your firm works, you, you may or may not be the kind of lasting partner that you said that you would, that you like had signed up to be. And so for the founder, it is, it's your entire life. 
And so I think VCs can sort of make it seem like your company matters as much to them as it, it does to you, but but no founder should ever actually think that that's the case because the mm-hmm. dynamic is, is hugely different. And you really want to have this kind of a partnership where they will have an influence on your business. They will be your business partner over hopefully many years if it goes well, and they'll certainly be a part of your team. And to do that after spending a total of maybe three hours for some of these seed uh, deals that are getting put together in a matter of days, you may have spent three hours on Zoom with this person and done a couple reference calls and then that's it. And this could be the person who's deciding whether or not you get to continue being the CEO of your own company. And then founders really control the timing more than more than they think that they do. But yes. VCs, like anyone who's selling, you do want someone to make a decision quickly in your favor. And you don't want to provide kind of breathing room for them to go talk to other people and run a whole process and everything. So it's very much in your benefit as a VC for them to make their decision quickly, you know, if it's if it's in in your benefit for them to do so. And so I think, you know, founders would do very well to spend time with VCs outside of a fundraising cycle and if they don't have time for you because you're not raising, just mark them off the list. <laughs> like they're not going to have time for you once you're in their portfolio either because right. 85%, maybe even 95% of the job is hunting. Well, Mercy, now that you have transitioned out of professional day-to-day investing into being an angel investor again, Mm -hmm. what are some of the areas that you're really excited about? And maybe talk about a few of the companies that you've invested in recently. Yeah. You know, I I love collaboration and, and productivity in particular tools that seem almost like a toy or at least really playful. I think that that was a huge part of the appeal of Slack is first this like water cooler socializer. First, it was the place where you were sharing memes and talking shit before then you're kind of accidentally, you know, getting work done. And then suddenly, you know, now it's a massive enterprise messaging service, but it was definitely a hangout before it was that. And so I recently invested in this company called Gather. It's this fully remote team. They're building this thing that is fun. (laughs) It's a fun, I don't know, it's a fun place to be. So their idea is in the fullness of time to really build out the metaverse corollary dimension to the real world that we live in physically that happens on top of it. And I think that's very exciting for a lot of equity reasons, right? People can like, quote unquote, go to Sand Hill Road who could never actually come to Sand Hill Road just to name just even one thing. But then the team is great. Most of the founders have never met each other in person. And actually, one of, oh my God. One of the founders told me, I don't often feel old in Silicon Valley because I just, I don't know, I'm such an optimist that I just like don't think about things that way. I don't feel like I've missed out on anything. But my first company was this game called the Nethernet and Mm -hmm. it created this like alternate reality on top of internet web pages. And so you could put them in as part of quests for other players. You could do things to affect them, like um, leave bombs, or you could protect them. And uh, one of the founders told me that the game was a huge part of his year in the eighth grade. Oh. <laughs> he played it. played it every day. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I feel a little bit old. <laughs> so you you were his Oregon Trail. I was his Oregon Trail. Oh my gosh! Wow, now I'm hugely complimented. Never mind. That's I don't iconic. Feel old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny. Still, and Phil, the CEO of Figma, who who I've known since he was uh, 16, and he just 
I met him when he was an intern at O'Reilly Publishing, and he was just himself even then. He just really stuck out as this incredibly bright, really special person. And he was a player of the game as well. We met, we became friends, and then he sent me this deal. And he said, he said, oh my gosh, you have to see this. It's the NetherNet. I invested. I love these guys. And so I invested as well. And they've been wonderful to work with. I'm really excited about the future of, of hybrid work. Yeah. And I mean, we're co-investors in a handful of things. So I think you also invested in Threads, mm-hmm. Rousseau's company, mm-hmm. which is also in the productivity space. Mutiny, Mutiny. which is a little bit different, mm-hmm. but also in the SaaS space. Anything in particular that you really look for when you're backing founders? We talked a little bit about like people out of FANG, mm-hmm. but just in general, like what's your what's your checklist? Like what gets you excited? My My baseline is fundamentally, would I go work for this person? Mm-hmm. That's how I, yeah. you know, tried to hire people as well. When even if it's not, oh, like the next day, you know, let's switch roles. But there are definitely many people who I hired at Slack who I would happily work for. That was a huge amount of being a VC is helping CEOs hire. And so if I couldn't mm-hmm. authentically say I would work with this person every day, they're fantastic. I didn't want to be trying to recruit for someone who I also wouldn't work for. And I think it can be is one of those things that's simple, but then when you unpack it, it's, you know, it's everything is there because the kind of care that you would take around finding out who this person is fundamentally, when you would go work for someone, I would take that kind of care and figuring out really who's this human being, because that's ultimately the thing that matters is what kind of a person they are. Well, Mercy already knows this, but when she told me she was leaving Lightspeed, I said, well, okay, reserve me a slot on the cap table of whatever you're going to start I said the same next. thing. <laughs> yes. Can we have that on record? <laughs> I was like, my checkbook is ready. Like, whatever you end up doing next, like, you're just such a superstar. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So, okay, Mercy. So this is what we typically do at the end. Who are the people who've really helped you in your career as mentors that really stand out? And sometimes these are people we end up inviting on the pod next. Oh, yeah. Well, you're already a host of the pod. So (laughs) Um, yeah, definitely, you know, having uh, developing a close friendship with you at Lightspeed has been a big highlight of my time there that I think of as kind of getting an MBA in those, yes. in those two years. I decided early on I was too poor and straddled with student loan debt to actually get an MBA, which yep. is actually about five or $600,000 when you count in the income that you missed out on. So it's not a joke. <laughs> Mercy and I were the only like non-MBA folks, I think, on Sand Hill Road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, almost, almost always. Yeah. Yeah, it is funny. I have an MBA, but I would call both of you for most questions that you think an MBA would help you answer. So just, I'm willing to admit that. My partnership with my now husband has been really incredible. Yonda is very different for me in in a lot of ways. I am a very like lawful good kind of goody two shoes. You know, like I think a lot of like people who grew up working class are. And, you know, as you find out later, it's because like, not to become, you know, too radical on this uh, podcast, but it's because like the owning classes have spent generations making poor people feel like they should be so grateful to yep. to get these mm-hmm. poverty wages, et cetera. And so I think I internalize that like a lot of other people who, who grew up poor. And Yonda is just a, a very neutral person and very intelligent and strategic. And but his neutrality allows him to sort of pick up a situation or a person's psychology as almost this object. And we'll talk through it. And he shows me these different sides, different options for, for me 
that I would have like never do. And because I would never do them, it, it doesn't occur to me to do it. But learning how to see the world through his lens has really magnified my sort of natural ability to create empathy with with other people because I have so much, you know, empathy and understanding for how his mind thinks. It's really helped me game out and predict what other people are going to do. And, you know, that's a huge part of being successful as a professional, it turns out, is just understanding what are your incentives? What are the incentives of other people? And thinking about, you know, society as more of a game or a system. And so learning how to do that by, you know, observing and talking with him has been great. Michael Daring at, at Harrison Metal. I would often go, you know, for every job change in the sort of like early mid part of my career, I would go talk it through with him. And he introduced me to a bunch of the founders in portfolio. And I knew that there would be some sort of a cultural alignment between, you know, me and that company because they had taken money from MD, who's a has a very specific lens on the world as well. You mentioned him earlier in the podcast, and it was one of those things where I was like, Man, I haven't talked to him in years and like, what a miss. Like, he's a really amazing person who was a kind of a mentor to us as we were kind of thinking about what marketing should be at Twitter, which is a whole other story as to how I found myself in that conversation in that room. Yeah. But he, he absolutely was a huge coach and mentor because the answer to that question was not so much about marketing, but was instead about the organization yes. and about like, what were we? <laughs> yeah. And so very, very wise and generous with this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he pays it forward with these incredible classes that are a great use of, of those like development funds. If anyone is looking for a way to do that, the Harrison Metal classes are incredible. I took finance for management from him and you go through the Apple S1 or whatever. You like go through all the, you know, the financials of all of these companies and you realize like, oh, here's the thing that they do that makes them now trillion dollar company is actually they're not holding all that inventory or paying for it. Genius. <laughs> awesome. Mercy, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. For our founders out there who are listening, you need to have Mercy on your cap table. She is actively angel investing, one of the most incredible zero to one builders in the Valley and just amazing human as well. So thank you, Mercy, for spending Aww. some time with us today. Aww. Thank you both so much. It's such a joy. We're so grateful to have you in our orbit, Mercy. Oh, likewise. <laughs> That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. To keep up with Mercy, you can follow her on Twitter at Mercy. Next up on the pod, we sit down with Rachel Horowitz, a communications executive who's led teams at Google, Coinbase, Twitter, and many more. The Hashtag Angels podcast is just getting started. And as always, we love your feedback. Give us a shout out on Twitter at hashtag angels or leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. Thank you, especially to the team at Edit Audio for producing and editing this episode and Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music who composed the opening music. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.